I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, But in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read... Uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Well, there's a lot of things about being quarantined in your house and away from school and away from work uh, that are good, in a way. You spend more time with your kids because you're just sitting there staring at each other all day long. Uh, no more about them just by being in their presence than I ever thought I would my entire life. Uh, the bad? We're all staring at each other all day. Just like a sweat box that we're all just sitting in. Just the rage and the resentment building. So, uh, there's been a cat problem. One of mine passed away recently, little tiny Tavy. Uh, she was 19, she passed away, uh, about a month or a month and a half ago. And, uh, Sixer, uh, he is 21 years old, and he's weirdly relatively healthy, considering his age. Uh, he has been kind of sad and moping around. And since we're all sitting in the house, we all see it, and we can't ignore it. We're all staring at each other and staring at the cat. But, he looks pretty sad, and we've known it for a while, but, uh, he's not getting any better. There's been talk of getting another cat, but we never really took it too seriously. But now that we're all just sitting in the house, we had to have a reason to get out. And I think we kind of made up excuses why it's okay to get a new cat now. So, we did. It's a cute little orange cat that came with the name uh, Spice, which is silly, stupid, but, you know, we're stuck with it. He doesn't respond to the name. I think we could probably rename him, but I haven't renamed a cat in uh, 19 to 21 years. So I just said, eh, we'll stick with Spice. We'll figure out a cute nickname for him or something. Uh, Sweet little cat. Very quiet, very shy, uh, loving uh, when you're around it enough. I'm not around it enough, so it's terrified of me. It won't come near me. But loves the kids and snuggles up with the kids and all that cute stuff. Sixer, who's so mild-mannered and so kind on his own, hates this cat. I have never heard Sixer hiss in my entire life. I heard Sixer hiss three times yesterday. So, uh, he just watches this cat walk around disapprovingly, like an old man on his porch. And uh, this poor cat is just terrified, just scooching around, trying to explore the house, but basically just goes and hides under the bed upstairs and stayed there all day today. So, that was a failed experiment. Uh, Sixer's unhappy. The new cat's unhappy. Uh, my kids and I are just worried all the time that we failed. And uh, that's what quarantining does. It's an experiment as a social engineering with man and cat. Ah, you want to be a writer. And you want to write something important that means something to someone. You hear the stories about how you got to do your time by 
writing and magazines and whatever else. And then eventually you'll stumble across something big that really strikes a nerve with people. But what's the secret? Now, I'll tell you what the secret is. The secret is you have to have something you're obsessed with. It's something that's a big deal to you. And you got to write about it and write about it in a way that gets the average guy in the street to actually care about it. Uh, for Jack Kerouac, it was being middle-aged and having young beatniks actually find you interesting or cool. Oh, he loved it. That's all he wrote about. Ah, the freewheeling lifestyle that he had. Then you got people who are depressed as hell, like Kafka. Hated his job, uh, the pointlessness of existence, and so he wrote about it. Uh, and he got everyone else to think, oh, that's weird. Yeah, good for you. And so that's how he... Well, he didn't get to celebrate that. They were all published after he died. Uh, then you got people like Philip K. Dick. What was he obsessed with? Just being completely insane. He had hallucinations like crazy, and he suffered from them for a long time. But he created some of the greatest works of science fiction. Ones that uh, anyone can enjoy, like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? which became Blade Runner, the movie. And uh, Ubik, which I don't think ever became a movie. But uh, that was declared uh, uh, the finest piece of science fiction writing in America, period. So, uh, downside to that, he suffered greatly his entire life. Uh, he died in 1982. Uh, he threatened his third wife uh, by murdering her, or threatening to murder her, and uh, had all sorts of... Uh, big, crazy speeches that he would give at conferences that he was invited to. It's uh, kind of worth looking up. So, we're going to read two stories of his. Are they good? No. They're from his pulp days in the 50s when he was still relatively sane. Uh, they're clever. Yeah, they're cute. But they're not uh, Blade Runner or anything like that. So we're going to dive into those, starting with The Eyes Have It and Beyond the Door. The Eyes Have It, by Philip K. Dick. Yeah, it was quite by accident I discovered the incredible invasion of Earth yeah, by life forms from another planet, is, yet I haven't done anything about it. I can't think of anything to do. I wrote to the government, and they sent back a pamphlet on the repair and maintenance of frame houses. Anyhow, the whole thing is known. I'm not the first to discover it. Maybe it's even under control. I was sitting in my easy chair, idly turning the pages of a paperback book someone had left on the bus when I came across the reference that first put me on the trail. For a moment, I didn't respond. It took some time for the full import to sink in after I comprehended. It seemed odd. I hadn't noticed it right away. The reference was clearly to a non-human species of incredible properties not indigenous to Earth. A species, I hasten to point out, customarily masquerading as ordinary human beings. Eh, the skies, however, became transparent in the face of the following observations by the author. It was at once obvious the author knew everything, knew everything, and was taking it in his stride. The line, uh, and I tremble remembering it even now, read, His eyes slowly roved about the room. Oh, vague chills assailed me. I tried to picture the eyes. Yeah, did they roll like dimes? Yeah, the passage indicated not. They seemed to move through the air, not over the surface. Rather rapidly, apparently, no one in the story was surprised. That's what tipped me off. 
No sign of amazement at such an outrageous thing. Later, the matter was amplified. His eyes moved from person to person. There it is in a nutshell. The eyes had clearly come apart from the rest of them were on their own. My heart pounded, my breath choked in my windpipe. I had stumbled on an accidental mention of a totally unfamiliar race, obviously non-terrestrial, yet to the characters in the book is perfectly natural, which suggested they belong to the same species. Ah, and the author? Ah, slow suspicion burned in my mind. The author is taking it rather too easily in his stride. Evidently, he felt this is quite a usual thing. He made absolutely no attempt to conceal his knowledge. The story continued. Presently, his eyes fastened on Julia. Yeah, Julia, being a lady, had at least the breeding to feel indignant. She is described as blushing and knitting her brows angrily. At this, I sighed with relief. They weren't all non-terrestrials. The narrative continues. Slowly, calmly, his eyes examined Every inch of her. Ah, great Scott! But here the girl turned and stomped off, and the matter ended. I lay back in my chair, gasping with horror. My wife and family regarded me in wonder. What's eh, wrong, dear? My wife asked. I couldn't tell her. Knowledge like this is too much for the ordinary run-of-the-mill person. I had to keep it to myself. Nothing! I gasped. Oh, I leapt up, snatched a book, and hurried out of the room. In the garage... I continued reading. There was more. Trembling, I read the next revealing passage. He put his arm around Julia. Presently, she asked him if he would remove his arm. He immediately did so, with a smile. It's not said what was done with the arm uh, after the fellow had removed it. Maybe it was left standing upright in the corner. Maybe it was thrown away. I don't care. In any case, the full meaning was there, staring me right in the face. Here was a race of creatures capable of removing portions of their anatomy at will. Eyes, arms, and maybe more, without batting an eyelash. My knowledge of biology came in handy at this point. Obviously, they were simple beings. Unicellular, some sort of primitive single-celled things. Beings no more developed than starfish. Starfish can do the same, you know. I read on and came to the incredible revelation tossed off coolly by the author without the faintest tremor. Outside the movie theater, we split up. Part of us went inside, part over to the cafe for dinner. Binary fission, obviously. Sitting in half and forming two entities. Perhaps each lower half went to the cafe, it being farther, and the upper halves to the movies. I read on, hands shaking. I had really stumbled onto something here. My mind reeled. As I made out this passage, I'm afraid there's no doubt about it. Poor Bibney had lost his head again. Which is followed by, and Bob says, he has utterly no guts. Yet Bibney got around all well as the next person. The next person, however, was just as strange. He was soon described as totally lacking in brains. There was no doubt of the thing in the next passage. Julia, whom I had thought to be the one normal person, reveals herself as also being an alien life form, similar to the rest. Quite deliberately, Julia had given her heart to the young man. It didn't relate what the final disposition of the organ was, but I didn't really care. It was evident Julia had gone right on living in her usual manner, like all the others in the book, without heart, 
arms, eyes, brains, viscera, uh, dividing up in two when the occasion demanded, yeah, without qual. Thereupon she gave him her hand. Ugh, I sickened. The rascal now had her hand, as well as her heart. I shudder to think uh, what he's done with them by this time. He took her arm. And not content to wait, he started dismantling her on his own. Uh, flushing crimson, I slammed the book shut and leapt to my feet, but not in time to escape one last reference to those carefree bits of anatomy whose travels had originally thrown me on track. Her eyes followed him all the way down the road and across the meadow. I rushed from the garage and back inside the warm house, as if the accursed things were following me. My wife and children were playing Monopoly in the kitchen. I joined them and played with frantic fervor, brow feverish, teeth chattering. I had had enough of the thing and wanted to hear no more about it. Let them come on. Let them invade Earth. I don't want to get mixed up in it. I have absolutely no stomach for it. Next up, Beyond the Door by Philip K. Dick. That night, at the dinner table, he brought it out and set it down beside her plate. Doris stared at it, her hand to her mouth. Uh, my God, uh, what is it? She looked up at him, bright-eyed. Uh, we'll open it. Doris tore the ribbon and paper from the square package with her sharp nails, her bosom ooh, rising and falling. Larry stood watching her as she lifted the lid. He lit a cigarette and leaned against the wall. Ah, a cuckoo clock, Doris cried. A real cuckoo clock like my mother had. She had turned the clock over and over, just like my mother had when Pete was still alive. Her eyes sparkled with tears. Uh, it's made in Germany, Larry said. After a moment, he added, Yeah, Carl got it yeah, for me wholesale. He knows some guy in the clock business. Otherwise, I wouldn't have... He stopped. Doris made a funny little sound. Uh, I mean, otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to afford it, he scowled. Hey, what's the matter with you? You've got your clock, haven't you? Isn't that what you want? Doris sat, holding onto her clock, her fingers pressed against the brown wood. Uh, well, Larry said, what's the matter? He watched in amazement as she leapt up and ran from the room, still clutching the clock. She shook his head, uh, never satisfied. Ah, they're all that way. Never get enough. He sat down at the table and finished his meal. The cuckoo clock is not very large. It was handmade, however, and there were countless frets on it, little indentations and ornaments scored in the soft wood. Doris sat on the bed, drying her eyes and winding the clock. She set the hands by her wristwatch. Presently, she carefully moved the hands to two minutes of ten. She carried the clock over to the dresser and propped it up. Then she sat waiting. Her hands twisted together in her lap, waiting for the cuckoo to come out, uh, for the hour to strike. She, she sat there. She thought about Larry and what he had said. And what she had said, too, for that matter. Not that she could be blamed for any of it. After all, she couldn't keep listening to him forever without defending herself. You had to blow your own trumpet in this world. She touched her handkerchief to her eyes suddenly. Why did he have to say that uh, about getting it wholesale? Why did he have to spoil it all? 
If he felt that way, he needn't have got it in the first place. She clenched her fists. He was so mean, so damn mean. But she was glad of the little clock sitting there ticking to itself with its funny grilled edges and the door. Inside the door, oh, it was a cuckoo waiting to come out. Was he listening, eh? His head cocked to one side, listening to hear the clock strike so that he would know when to come out. Did he sleep? Yeah, between hours. Well, she would soon see him. She could ask him. And she would show the clock to Bob. He would love it. Bob loved old things, even old stamps and buttons. He liked to go with her to the stores, of course. It was a little awkward, but Larry had been staying at the office so much, and that helped. If only Larry didn't call up sometimes to... There was a whir. The clock shuddered. And all at once the door opened. The cuckoo came out, uh, sliding swiftly and paused and looked around solemnly, scrutinizing her, the room, the furniture. It was the first time he had seen her, she realized, smiling to herself in pleasure. She stood up, coming toward him shyly. Gone, she said, I'm waiting. The cuckoo opened his bill, whirred and chirped rhythmically. Then, after a moment of contemplation, he retired and the door snapped shut. Oh, she was delighted. She clapped her hands and spun in a little circle. He was marvelous. Ah, perfect. And the way he had looked around, studying her, sizing her up, he he liked her. She was certain of it. And she, of course, loved him at once, completely. It was just what she had hoped would come out of the little door. Doris uh, went to the clock. Uh, She bent over the little door, her lips close to the wood. Do you hear me? She whispered. I think you're the most wonderful cuckoo in the world, she paused, embarrassed. I hope you like it here. Then she went downstairs again, slowly, her head high. Larry and the cuckoo clock really never got along well from the start. Doris said it was because she didn't wind it right. Uh, didn't like being only half wound all the time. Larry turned the job of winding over to her, and the cuckoo came out every quarter of an hour and ran the spring down without remorse. And someone had to be ever after it, winding it up again. Doris did her best. She forgot a good deal of the time. Then Larry would throw his newspaper down with an elaborate, weary motion stand-up. He would go to the dining room, where the clock was mounted on the wall over the fireplace. He would take the clock down, and making sure he had his thumb over the little door, he'd wind it up. Why do you put your thumb over the door? Doris asked once. Yeah, you're supposed to. She raised an eyebrow. Are you sure? I wonder if it isn't that you don't want him to come out while you're standing so close. Uh, why not? Maybe you're afraid of him. Larry laughed. He put the clock back on the wall and gingerly removed his thumb. When Doris wasn't looking, he examined his thumb. There was still a trace of the nick cut out of the soft part of it. Who or what had pecked at him? One Saturday morning, when Larry was down at the office working over some important special accounts, Bob Chambers ah, came to the front porch and rang the bell. Doris was taking a quick shower. She dried herself and slipped into her robe. When she opened the door, Bob stepped inside, grinning. Hi, he said, looking around. Oh, it's all right. Larry's at the office. Fine, Bob gazed at her slim legs below the hem of her robe. How nice you look today. Ah, she laughed. Be careful. Maybe I shouldn't let you in after all. Ah. They looked at one another, half amused, half frightened. Presently, Bob said, 
If you want, I'll... Oh, no, for God's sake, she caught a hold of his sleeve. Just get out of the doorway so I can close it, Mrs. Peters, across the street, you know. She closed the door, and I, I want to show you something, she said. You haven't seen it. Yeah, he was interested. An antique or, or what? She took his arm, leading him toward the dining room. Oh, you'll love it, Bobby, she stopped wide-eyed. I hope you will. You must. You must love it. It means so much to me. He means so much. He? Bob frowned. Who is he? Doris laughed. Are you jealous? Come on. A moment later, they stood before the clock, looking up at it. Yeah, come on a few minutes. Wait until you see him. I know you two will get along just fine. Uh, what does Larry think of him? Ah, they don't like each other. Sometimes when Larry's here, he won't come out. Larry gets mad if he doesn't come out on time. He says, uh, says what? Doris looked down. He always says he's been robbed, even if he did get it wholesale, she brightened. But I know he won't come out because he doesn't like Larry. When I'm here alone, he comes right out after me, every 15 minutes, even though he really only has to come out on the hour. She gazed up at the clock. He comes out for me because he wants to. Ah, we talk. I tell him things. Of course, I, I'd like to have him upstairs in my room, but it wouldn't be right. There's the sound of footsteps on the front porch. They looked at each other, horrified. Larry pushed the front door open, grunting. He set his briefcase down and took off his hat. Then he saw Bob for the first time. Chambers! I'll be damned, his eyes narrowed. What are you doing here? He came into the dining room, and Doris drew her robe about her, helplessly backing away. I, Bob began, that is we, he broke off, glancing at Doris. Suddenly the clock began to whir. The cuckoo came rushing out, bursting into sound. Larry moved toward him. Shut that din off, he said, and raised his fist toward the clock. The cuckoo snapped into silence and retreated. The door closed. Ah, that's better, Larry studied Doris and Bob, standing mutely together. I came over to look at the clock, Bob said. Doris told me that it's a rare antique and that... Nuts! I bought it myself, Larry walked up to him. Get out of here, he turned to Doris. You too, and take that damn clock with you. He paused, rubbing his chin. No, leave the clock here. It's mine. I bought it and paid for it. In the weeks that followed after Doris left, Larry and the cuckoo clock got along even worse than before. For one thing, the cuckoo stayed inside most of the time, sometimes even at 12 o'clock when he should have been busiest. And if he did come out at all, he usually spoke only once or twice, never the correct number of times. And there was a sullen, uncooperative note in his voice, a jarring sound that made Larry uneasy, a little angry. But he kept the clock wound because the house was very still and quiet, and it got on his nerves not to hear someone running around talking and dropping things. And even the whirring of the clock sounded good to him, but he didn't like the cuckoo at all. And sometimes he spoke to him. Listen, he said late one night to the closed little door. Oh, I know you can hear me. I ought to give you back to the Germans, back to the Black Forest, he paced back and forth. I wonder what they're doing now, the two of them, that young punk with his books and his antiques. A man shouldn't be interested in antiques. That's for women, he said his jaw. Isn't that right? The clock said nothing. Larry walked up in front of it. Isn't that right? He demanded. Don't you have anything to say? He looked at the face of the clock. It was almost eleven. 
Just a few seconds before the hour. All right, I'll wait until 11. Then I want to hear what you have to say. You've been pretty quiet the last few weeks since she left. He grinned, wryly. Maybe you don't like it here since she's gone, he scowled. Well, I paid for you, and you're coming out whether you like it or not. You hear me? Eleven o'clock came. Far off at the end of town, the great tower clock boomed sleepily to itself, but the little door remained shut. Nothing moved. The minute hand passed, and the cuckoo did not stir. He was someplace inside the clock beyond the door, silent and remote. All right, if that's the way you feel, Larry murmured, his lips twisting. But it isn't fair. It's your job to come out. We all have to do things we don't like. He went unhappily into the kitchen and opened the great gleaming refrigerator. As he poured himself a drink, he thought about the clock. There was no doubt about it that Cuckoo should come out, Doris or no Doris. He'd always liked her from the very start. They had got along well, the two of them. Probably he liked Bob, too. Probably that he'd seen enough of Bob to get to know him. They would be quite happy together, Bob and Doris and the cuckoo. Larry finished his drink. He opened the drawer at the sink and took out the hammer. He carried it carefully into the dining room. The clock was ticking gently to itself against the wall. Look, he said, waving the hammer. You know what I have here? You know what I'm going to do with it? I'm going to start on you first, he smiled. Birds of a feather, that's what you are, the three of you. The room was silent. Are you coming out? We'd have to come in and get you. The clock whirred a little. I hear you in there. You, You got a lot of talking to do. Enough for the last three weeks, as I figure it. You owe me. The door opened. The cuckoo came out straight at him. Larry was looking down, and his brow wrinkled in thought. He glanced up at the cuckoo, caught him squarely in the eye. Down he went, hammer and chair and everything, hitting the floor with a tremendous crash. For a moment, the cuckoo paused, its small body poised rigidly. Then it went back inside its house. The door snapped tight shut after it. The man lay on the floor, stretched out grotesquely, his head bent over to one side. Nothing moved or stirred. The room was completely silent. Except, of course, the ticking of the clock. I see, Doris said, her face tight. Bob put his arm around her, steadying her. Doctor, Bob said, can I ask you something? Of course, the doctor said. Is it very easy to break your neck falling from so low of a chair? It wasn't a very far to fall. I wonder if it might not have been an accident. Is there any chance that it might have been... Uh, suicide? The doctor rubbed his jaw. I never heard of anyone committing suicide that way. It was an accident, I'm positive. I don't mean suicide, Bob murmured under his breath, looking up at the clock on the wall. I mean, something else. But no one heard him. Well, what do we learn from these two stories? We uh, learned in the first one that uh, a paranoid person can read anything they want into anything they read. That was a clever way of saying that. Uh, Not much to be gained from that, uh, except that in the end, he accepted what he believed to be reality, which is aliens invading and uh, the author's writing stories that he's reading that just don't seem to pay attention, but he does. Uh, And he was okay with it. He just sort of went back to playing Monopoly and accepted his fate. 
we could take the same attitude towards uh, the new global pandemic that's been going on. We just have to find happiness anyways. Like I'm doing. I'm spending a Friday night sitting in my basement recording episodes of podcasts because there's nothing else I can do. My friends aren't leaving the house and I can't go hang out with them. So I'm trapped here with two cats that hate each other and me in the basement dreading going up there and facing it. The next story, cuckoo clocks. Uh, if you're not nice to a small thing, yeah, it might kill you. And if the thing doesn't like you to begin with, it's never going to like you. You better watch out for it. And don't be hateful towards it. I feel the same way about the new cat I purchased. That thing is scared now. Oh, but eventually it's going to get vengeful. It's going to turn its resentment towards me. It's going to probably try to steal my breath in the middle of the night. Or something. It's a, a weird folklore thing that my cousin once told me that he believed in. Because he doesn't trust cats because they steal your breath while you're sleeping. How is that reality? I have no idea. Thanks for listening.